Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're offsite. I've got a wonderful view. That's a joke. I wish we had a vlog. I always say, I wish we had a vlog on this show because sometimes there's some really cool things and I'm always taking notes. And to, to give the audience at home listening, I'm looking at a brick building here in New York City. We're offsite. We're here at uh, Mount Sinai in New York City. I've got a special guest with us today. Dr. Amy Lucas, who's the Associate Professor of Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York with a specialty in GI and in particular, and why she's on the podcast today, in family hereditary risk to pancreatic cancer. Dr. Lucas, can I call you Amy? Of course. We're friends. We're new friends. Dr. Lucas, full disclosure, you're part of the Precede Consortium. We're really excited excited to have you on board and everything that's happening here at Mount Sinai in New York with helping families that are at this high risk for pancreatic cancer. So we'll get to that in a second. But as we always do with all our guests, which is common, is this is your opportunity to share with our audience a little bit about your background as there's a thing floating in the air here in our office. Uh little bit about your background. And as I said, before we started recording, you can go as far back of your background uh, and as high level, and then we'll go from there. All right. Thanks so much, Dino. And thank you for having me. Um, it's an honor to be part of this podcast. Uh, I know there's a lot of esteemed colleagues that have come before me. So, and actually we're not in my office um, no. right now. So we're the lid is of... from someone else's office. <laughs> <laughs> we're actually in one of my partner's offices. And that lovely brick building is actually 5 East 98th Street, which is where um, I see patients in the outpatient wow. setting. Um, so the middle section is sort of the administrative stuff. And on the side, even though it looks like it uh, was an apartment building or something like that, that's actually our um, faculty practice. And for those, I just want to jump in here. And we said this before when we were walking through, all the hospitals in New York are massive. Like th this is, I think I, I went and grabbed a coffee because I got here a little bit earlier, or a drink, I should say. I don't drink coffee right now. Um, and I think I walked like three blocks, which was still part of Sinai, going south towards Manhattan, towards downtown. But there was still a lot more this way. Yeah. And, you know, I think all of the hospitals in New York City land is um, tough to come by. Yeah. And so um, we often build up um, and, you know, space is really quite limited. So even though this seems like a massive complex, um, if you go to hospital centers that are located not in the middle of Manhattan, um, <laughs> you actually see that the complexes themselves are really quite sprawling yeah. um, and have a lot more uh, have a lot more room to offer. So. Yeah. It's a very different experience. Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. And the last thing I'm going to throw in here as we talk about the building, just to spend two seconds, and there's like a biohazard now I'm noticing up on that ventilation. So that must mean <laughs> that bad stuff comes out of that that uh, that vent. But um, this is iconic. Sinai is because it is on the marathon route. So for our runners who have run the marathon, and I know this personally this past fall when I ran the 19 race, I struggled a bit. And the section here, there was a ton of Sinai, Mount Sinai fans out there, clinicians, and they had a chair zone. It, it was really kind of the right place to have it because it's right about mile 24, the race on Fifth Ave, when Fifth Ave starts to creep up in the race. Um, so it's really iconic for our runners who have run the race. 
you probably don't realize you're running by Sinai because you're so into just finishing the race at that point, but it's got this historic, you know, landmark as part of the race around that mile 24, 25, as you get into right before you get into Central Park. Yeah, no, it's a great location. And what we're not looking at right now is that some of the offices actually have a view of Central Park. Um, which we do not have here. Um, I think, <laughs> and then if you go a little bit higher up in elevation to some of the higher floors, you get a great view all the way down Manhattan. So that's super wow. exciting. Spectacular. And one of my partners actually every year who lives um, in the neighborhood actually has a marathon chili party every single oh, year that so I have cool. not been able to attend because I have an out of town meeting that same weekend every single year. That's a super busy weekend. There's the APA, which is the American Associ uh, American Pancreatic. Pancreatic association always seems to have their uh major conference on that weekend so i've only attended that conference i think once out of the last 10 years just because the marathon always seems to conflict with that weekend so it's busy weekend so back to as we <laughs> get away from the buildings and our backdrop here your background oh yes back to my background um so i won't bore you with when i was born um <laughs> but i think you know when I think back to what really first got me here, I have to blame my high school biology teacher, Mr. Harcourt. Um, and I think he knows this because I've told it, I've told him uh, directly that he is probably to blame for both myself and my sister both being physicians in the end. Um, I would say I was always kind of more of a math science geek and wasn't really one of those English history um, type of students, but Mr. Harcourt really excited um, biology and he was my AP bio teacher um, in high school. So I, I have him to blame for almost everything that happened after that. Um, I went into college thinking I was pre-med, but I have to be honest, I don't really think I understood what that meant. Um, and in fact, when I met with the pre-med advisor um, my sophomore year, she um, basically yelled at me and told me that I had neglected all of my pre-med studies and I was lucky I had taken some AP bio and AP chemistry and AP physics because maybe we could arrange it so that I could graduate on time um, because I found myself um, really enjoying a lot of other courses um, because my college actually didn't have a required core curriculum. Where'd and you go to so school? I went to Brown University. Oh, in Rhode Island. In Rhode Island, yeah, which is actually where I was born. Um, but uh, Brown doesn't have any required courses and you can essentially take everything pass fail if you wanted to, um, which I, I wouldn't advise for anybody trying to get into medical school, mm -hmm. but it allows you the opportunity to sort of explore things that you wouldn't have tried before. So I found myself taking almost all philosophy and art history courses, um, to the point where I actually contemplated a double major in philosophy and art history um, while doing the pre-med courses. So you can see why the, the pre-med advisor sort of um, had to lay into me in my second year because I, I was not at all focusing um, on the pre-med courses at the time. Um, but I did complete all of the pre-med courses um, and I had the opportunity during my senior year to work in a basic science lab. At that point, I was studying the uh, processing of um, growth hormones in the body in a very basic science model. I was doing pipetting, I was doing mouse work. Um, and I really sort of thought that's where I would go with things. Um, but I also realized that I actually really like talking to people. Um, and I'm much more of a people person than sort of a mouse rat person. 
Um, and so uh, I did decide to pursue medical school um, and make sure that I had a clinical focus um, throughout medical school. I actually took an extra year in medical school where I again worked in a basic science lab. And um, this time I had a wonderful mentor, um, Nancy Berliner, who was a hematologist and uh, one of the first full professors of medicine as a woman at Yale University. Um, so she was um, just an amazing, incredible woman um, and really taught me how to be, uh, I think, a female mentor and how to be a good mentee. Um, and I also got to see how she sort of managed all of her other sort of outside of medicine responsibilities like her family and other extracurriculars. So she was um, really a wonderful influence on me. But um, she was a hematologist, or she is a hematologist, and she's a basic scientist. Um, and that's what I thought I wanted to do. So I spent a year in her lab um, working on neutrophil differentiation. Um, and when I came to New York for internal medicine residency at Columbia, um, I thought I was going to be a, a hematologist and oncologist. Um, probably more of a hematologist. And my first rotation as a medical resident was the inpatient oncology service. And I realized that that was not what I wanted to be. Um, and so I was a little bit uh, sort of lost for a little while. Um, I think that inpatient oncology is probably not sort of a fair place for medical trainees to decide where their career is going to take them. Um, and uh, I really didn't have the opportunity to sort of see what it was, what it would have been like to be um, a medical oncologist, I think, in the outpatient setting and really develop wonderful relationships with your um, patients. Um, but I did realize at that point that I was very interested in all of the GI cancers. Um, and I was much more interested in focusing on early detection and prevention um, of, in particular, the gastrointestinal malignancies like colon cancer and pancreatic cancer. So you do your residency at Columbia. Correct. And you realize that GI is really fascinating. Absolutely. So now do you then from there kind of you have to shift your track in terms of the direction you're going for your training. So do you go back to medical school or do you have to kind of shift like midway through the process? So uh, luckily, luckily for me, I realized this early in um, residency and um, the path to become a gastroenterologist is actually the same initial path right after medical school that is to become an oncologist or a hematologist or a cardiologist or a nephrologist. Um, so for all of these, what we call medical subspecialties, you typically start with your four years of medical school, um, and then you typically move into a three-year internal medicine mm -hmm. residency training program. Um, where you can sort of start to pick electives um, that have subspecialties, but really the bulk of the training is very much focused on inpatient internal medicine, and you rotate through cardiology wards, intensive mm -hmm. care units, um, so on and so forth. So I was fortunate enough to have this realization early, um, but at the time when I was applying for subspecialty training, 
um, you had to make this decision pretty early in um, your intern year. Um, so that's your first year of uh, medical residency and start the application process then. Um, and when you move to a whole new institution, you have to get to know, you know, the folks that are there and then ask them, you have to do a good job and ask them for letters of recommendation and put together a bit of a portfolio. Um, so by the time that you apply in around your second year of residency. So you did, and I'm going to back up a bit. You did your undergrad at Brown, mm -hmm. medical school at Yale, mm -hmm. and then your residency at Columbia. Yeah, so I think I should be at like you, Penn or Hopkins yeah, or somewhere you, further you down the, 95 like by now. You did the triple Ivy. Uh, I, I guess so. <laughs> right? Like in terms of, uh, that's that's impressive. Um, so coming out of the residency program with that GI focus at Columbia, so where did your career go from there then? So I was, um, a couple of really fortunate things happened to me um, then in residency because, you know, as I mentioned, I was sort of a little bit perplexed by this um, change in direction. Um, one was that we had this incredible internal medicine uh, service. This, we call it GenMed2 at Columbia, which was an internal medicine service that was really focused on um, inpatient GI and liver admissions to the hospital. Um, and I had a wonderful attending, um, Dr. Harold Frucht, um, be the inpatient attending um, when I was on the consult service. And um, Dr. Frucht at the time was working at Columbia and uh, was really instrumental in starting the high-risk um, pancreatic cancer genetics and prevention program um, at Columbia. And so he really got me interested in basically what I do right now. Um, and I, I'd say he's the mentor that really sort of helped me define my career goals um, and then ultimately helped me successfully apply for a gastroenterology fellowship. The other thing that was sort of fortunate um, that happened at the same time is um, I was asked to be a chief resident at Columbia, um, which is uh, an extra year of um, training, but also sort of administration and teaching. Um, and so that actually bought me an extra year before I had to apply for the gastroenterology fellowship. Um, and so I was able to sort of solidify a portfolio a little bit better for that application. So Dr. Frucht was really kind of your mentor that got you into GI, in particular pancreatic uh, high-risk families and, and seeing that. But was there, and this is a question I ask everyone who's in this space, the majority of the people who know me know why I do what I do, but it's also, it's always fascinating to me, like why people get into this field. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't, you don't have, do you have a personal connection? Like, yeah, I can, I'm happy to tell you. Yeah. Share. So yeah. was there someone in the family or? Yeah. So, um, my, uh, two of my grandparents when, um, I was in college and late high school were actually diagnosed with colon cancer. And so my interest in kind of the biology and genetics, um, of cancer itself really started then. Um, and you know, my, my main interest at the time was really colon cancer, um, and I saw my grandparents go through, um, you know, brief but failed treatments for colon cancer. Um, it was sort of the 90s, early 2000s. So, you know, our techniques for screening for colon cancer weren't what they are today. 
Um, certainly our treatments for colon cancer were not what they are today. Um, and so it was a very different, um, a very different sort of cycle that they went through, through their diagnosis and ultimately their deaths. Um, and they both, um, you know, I think had very different personal experiences with colon cancer. Um, but in the back of my mind, I think that's what sort of always drove me from a, you know, personal connection. Um, and it was all always very helpful that I was, you know, academically very interested in, let's say, the biology and particularly genetics of um, sort of risk um, for, for different cancers. Um, you know, Dr. Dr. Fruct and others, um, like Dr. Castrinos, who I also worked with um, during my fellowship training, um, had an interest in both pancreatic and um, colon cancer. Um, but pancreatic cancer, you know, when I when I met Dr. Fruct and started seeing patients with him in the office, um, I was really struck by how little information was out there um, for patients who have had, you know, multiple family members who had been affected by pancreatic cancer. And when I saw my patients, not that it's any, you know, less important, um, but when I saw patients who had a strong family history of colon cancer, you know, we had clear recommendations on, you know, what the next steps would be. You know, when do we recommend a colonoscopy? How often should we do a colonoscopy? Whether or not we should consider genetic testing? If genetic testing identifies a you know, gene mutation, what other cancers should we screen or do surveillance for? I think it was very, you know, it's becoming more and more well delineated, but at the time, even uh, sort of the comparison between pancreatic cancer high risk and colon cancer high risk, there was just a lot more um, information around colon cancer. And so there were a lot more unmet needs around pancreatic cancer. Um, and I wanted to get those answers for the patients that I was meeting along the way. I want to go way back to the very beginning. Were your parents clinicians? No, I don't know what they did wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but so you and your, but now your sister's a clinician. She's, mm -hmm. a, she's an MD or she's an MD. So um, my father, you know, has an MBA worked in finance um, his whole life. Uh, my mother uh, also worked until, you know, we came along. I'm one of three girls. I'm the oldest. Um, there are a few distant cousins who are in medicine, um, uh -huh. but none of my first cousins are in medicine. Um, I'm half Filipino, and one of my aunt, my my mom's family all lives in Hawaii. So one of my aunts um, is a nurse, but that's about as close as uh, we got to healthcare. Um, so it, it really was Mr. Harcourt's fault, um, I think. <laughs> um, but yes, so um, it's actually even better. So my sister uh, is a physician um, here at Mount Sinai. Oh, wow. Um, she is a pulmonary, uh, pulmonary critical care physician. Um, and her office is actually in the next suite over to my left. So she's right here. She, right I here. don't know. She's right here right but, now. But <laughs> Sometimes she's, she's off traveling for she's, work, um, but like, she's around. She can yeah. probably hear us if she puts a glass up against the wall. Well, she can probably appreciate some of the the same street <laughs> noise that we're hearing in the background. <laughs> That's least. awesome. Well, it's fascinating to me. And, and, and I mean, sometimes you see um, families where, you know, you have a strong influence in a particular career in that family and just the, the children take that path, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so, and the reason that's why I bring up the question is sometimes there are these events that happen in people's lives. And and we are from the pancreatic cancer community and from us at Project Purple, we're thankful that you do what you do, uh, Dr. Lucas, first of all. Uh, But it's just fascinating to me. And it goes back to my question that I had is, it's so fascinating to me, and we'll talk more about this, why people get into this, because it is such a challenge. Mm -hmm. And one of the things um, I've just written down is, you know, with GI cancer, and we've had a couple of GI specialists on the podcast already, Dr. Sonia Kuffer, who's part of the Precede uh, Consortium, who's focusing on GI in Chicago. There's so much within the GI. And I think she gave the examples, it's from, you know, the mouth you know, not to be gross here to the anus, right? Top to bottom. Yeah, top <laughs> to bottom, Where it goes into, right? where it goes out. Yeah, so there's so much that is involved in this. It can almost be, you know, from a layperson standpoint, I think very intimidating. You know, when you think about that, if you have to have expertise in that, and naturally people don't become generalists in that they do kind of focus, I think I see from my standpoint, in particular colon and pancreatic versus throat and esophageal or, you know, other cancers in that GI tract. So- it's, it's fascinating to me when you said colon cancer back in 2000, you know, with your grandparents. I mean, pancreatic cancer has been around for hundreds of years, right? But why were we so bad then? And, and, you know, these things are just happening now. You know, we're 20 years later, we're talking about screening protocols where that's been going on for other cancers for a long, long time. Yeah. No, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a few things. One is that, you know, colon cancer is a lot more common, um, than pancreatic cancer. Um, but do you think though, to that, do you think when we say common, because it's easy to identify where pancreatic cancer is not easy to identify potentially initially? I think you're certainly right. Um, there, but if you just look at sort of the sheer numbers of colon cancer diagnoses compared to pancreatic cancer yeah. diagnoses. You know, pancreatic cancer is on the rise um, and colon cancer has, you know, at least plateaued, if not declined. Um, although there are, you know, a lot of emerging concerns about young onset colon cancer, Correct. which is something um, that's scary that we're hearing a lot more about these days. People in their 20s and 30s getting the disease where yeah. before it was an old, per- you know, 50 and older. Yeah, exactly. Um, where your colonoscopy was sort of your 50th birthday yeah. present. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think now we're very careful thinking about, you know, signs and symptoms of colon cancer in younger folks when we would have just sort of chalked up maybe bleeding from the rectum to a hemorrhoid or something like that. Correct, yeah. um, I think it's really at the forefront of our minds. Um, but, you know, colon cancer uh, is more common um, and we had a sort of pretty well-defined timeline of events, if you will, from, you know, what happens in with gene mutations that go from early colon cancer, how long it takes a polyp to um, develop out of normal tissue and go on to progress to to full-blown colon cancer. And, you know, unlike the pancreas, um, and many people who are 50 and above might not agree completely with me about this, but unlike the pancreas, the colon is actually somewhat accessible organ um, mm-hmm. to get to through colonoscopy. And so we have pretty good data going back that uh, colon cancer screening and colon cancer early detection um, can help people. 
And we can do that in not just people who have a family history of colon cancer, but we can do that in, you know, your average um, individual. The problem, one of the problems with pancreatic cancer is um, because it's relatively rare, um, if we screened everybody in the population for pancreatic cancer, even if we had um, an absolutely perfect test with you know 100% what we call sensitivity and 100% specificity, which are basically test characteristics um, that can help physicians and other providers judge how good a, a screening test could be. Even if we had an absolutely perfect test, we could diagnose all of the pancreatic cancers in, let's say, people who are 50 and above, because colon cancer or pancreatic cancer still happens in older individuals most mm -hmm. of the time. Um, but we'd come up with so many false positive tests um, that ultimately the harm that we could do by screening for pancreatic cancer in your average um, population would be greater than any potential benefit that we would derive from it. So we can screen for colon cancer in the general population. Um, Which is not very invasive. I mean, a colonoscopy is not everybody's favorite test, test but, but and I know that's evolved a bit. I know I, I had my own colonoscopy two years ago. I had some health concerns. Um, and I went in and, you know, they knock you out and you wake up and you feel like brand new with that propofol. Yeah, it's actually use. quite nice. <laughs> yeah, the Michael Jackson drug. Um, and I know there's now, I, I think there was some new testing, I think that was being used with like gas instead of the, the traditional the way. The CO2 insufflation. Correct, correct. And, which, yeah. I, and again, I'm not an expert on this, but I know, so the, the testing has evolved. Certainly. Um, there's still, for colonoscopy, you still have to do everybody's favorite part, which is the drink the bowel preparation. Um, flush you out. Flush of. you out. Um, I have to be, on every time I speak to my father about colonoscopy, he's like, that horrible Holly Golightly stuff. Um, and he will not, he'll go off on like about a 10 yeah. minute rant about the bowel preparation, which, you know, I think is better now than it used to be um mine wasn't bad and it's that's not, a, not bad i don't think you know for listeners home who never had one it's um you know it's not as bad as what i think is out there um it's not probably the thing you want to do every other week um but it you know it, it wasn't as bad as i think there there's more nihilism i guess on the internet and within the general public of how bad it can be and for me, it wasn't that bad. Maybe I'm just an exception to the rule, possibly. So, so I actually tell uh, probably a fair number of my patients. I've actually had two colonoscopies myself, um, and um, I have tried to actually change the bowel preparation that I've used for each of them because I figure if I'm prescribing or giving it to people, I should actually know you know what I'm dealing with, and I've tasted other bowel preparations. Um, People's palate for a bowel preparation is probably, you know, different depending on the person, just as we all have preferences for, you know, different types of beverages. It's never going to be your favorite thing no. that you've ever had. It's not going to taste like Tito's no, and vodka. If you exactly. like Tito's and, you know, vodka, Tito's vodka, I should say. Um, but it's really, it's um, not the worst. And there are ways to sort of speak with your providers and manage the bowel preparation so that you can really minimize any, um, you know, some people have some nausea and other things yeah. like that. Um so without giving all of the advice away <laughs> through your podcast, um, it's a lot more manageable, I think, than um, uh, it probably used to be. And we're a lot better at doing the bowel preparation. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're not willing or able to do a colonoscopy, um, 
that's not the only test for colon cancer screening. There are stool-based tests and um, some countries and even healthcare systems within the United States first start with a stool-based test. Um, But it's important, I think, for everybody to know that even if you elect a stool-based test, um, if anything is positive, it does need to be followed up by a colonoscopy. So comparing the colonoscopy then to the current screening that we have for high-risk families, which is a good transition, for pancreatic cancer, it's less, it's not necessarily evasive, but there's less risk, I guess we would say, would you say, from a from a pure data standpoint? Because the screening tools that are available for high-risk patients now in, pink, in the pancreatic cancer screening uh, setting are what? ERCPs? So, so what we typically recommend for, you know, the right person, um, and the right person is means a lot of different things, but it's a combination of age, family history, um, genetics, um, and other risk factors. Um, but the recommendation is for either in a special type of MRI, including what we call an MRCP, um, or an endoscopic ultrasound, or an EUS. Um, we don't have great data to say that one is better than the other. Um, and so what you'll find amongst those who do pancreatic cancer surveillance in high-risk individuals um, is that you might get an assortment of recommendations from um, different providers. But by and large, the re- recommendation would be either for an MRCP, MRI, um, or endoscopic ultrasound, uh, at least typically annually, um, starting usually after the age of 50, unless there are particular factors in the family like younger onset cancers or certain gene mutations. So there's risk, there's a higher risk. I want to understand this. There's a higher, I mean, I can see where the uh, endoscopic ultrasound, because naturally you're putting people under anesthesia or propofol or what, what a, mm-hmm. some sort of chemical that is putting them yeah. to sleep. Usually people don't like to have a tube down there. No. Well, <laughs> so they're awake. And plus, yeah. And, yep. and you're going down with a tube. So yeah. Um, so there's risk naturally because the tube is going down and there's potential for something to transpire. Mm-hmm. But with an MRI, the risks are high as well or? So the MRI is typically, my, I think, perceived as a lower risk risk, um, examination. Um, You know, certainly MRI is nice because there's no radiation. Correct. Um, And so that's something that we're always very concerned about, especially when you require repeat examinations. Um, And particularly if you're doing the examination because somebody is for some reason at an increased risk of cancer, um, we like to decrease radiation exposure as much as possible. So MRI is um, great because there is no radiation from that perspective. The tricky parts about MRI um, are that it takes a little while. Um, If anyone's ever had a CAT scan, um, CAT scans can be done relatively quickly and you're really done within minutes. Um, If anybody's ever had an MRI, um, it's different depending on what part of the body you're looking at. 
And because we're looking at the abdomen and your abdomen's actually always moving with inspiration, expiration, um, and you know, typical other sort of movements inside of your body, um, it takes a little bit longer for the MRI technician to get all the sequences that we need. Um, and you have to do a couple of breath holds um, throughout the examination, um, which can be uh, a little bit challenging sometimes. Mm-hmm. And particularly that can be challenging if people have issues um, around being in the MRI tube. Claustrophobia. With yeah. claustrophobia. <laughs> um, and so that I'd say that's what people sometimes don't like so much about the MRI. Yeah. And would it be suffice to say to Dr. Lucas that with the MRI, and I know I've heard this, so there there is an agent that's given when we do these types of tests. So not to be, uh, I, I have air quotes here for the audience listening at home. If that agent does not stick to particular cells in the abdomen, it's not going to particularly light up that something is awry or something is there. So things that are maybe at a microscopic level, or there's things that sometimes, and this is not just from the screening standpoint, but I know this happens in just the, the general public where MRI isn't always the most clear picture, I guess is what I'm trying to say when they do these scans, because I know there's been situations where patients have had an MRI for pancreatic cancer. They see one localized tumor, they go in to open them up, or they do another type of diagnostic test where they, you know, put a, do, they do an ultrasound or endoscopic ultrasound, and then they see spots, Mm -hmm. you know, elsewhere that do not get picked up on an MRI. So sometimes the MRI is not as crystal clear from an imaging standpoint. Yeah. Would you I think agree or? I, you know, no test is perfect. Correct. No matter what test it is. And that's getting back to what I was just talking about earlier, the sensitivity and specificity of um, the different tests. Um, MRI is only, MRI is as good as, first of all, the pictures, yeah. um, the MRI machine, yeah. and the person who's reading it. Correct. Um, and so those are um, a couple of variables along the way. Um, and you're right, it's not perfect at picking up everything, even if you have all of those other factors yeah. um, all uh, lined up. Um, but no test is really perfect um, in that regard. Um, and that's for all cancer screening. I mean, I know we're, we're talking about pancreatic cancer here, but the same could be said for breast cancer. And, you know, I know uh, for many females, sometimes the uh, mammograms don't work and they have to get different testing, further testing. Yeah. Um, so that I, I just want to be full disclosure here. We're just not picking on pancreatic cancer. Um, but the screening is, as you said, is only as good as what it shows and what it's able to show. Yeah. And, you know, that's absolutely true for mammograms, for breast ultrasounds. Um, it's true for colonoscopy. I mean, one of the risks that I um, counsel my patients on is that there's a chance that there's a cancer in there that we're gonna miss. Um, And so a missed lesion is actually one of the risks of um, any sort of screening test because no test is perfect. What I thought you were going to say about risks of MRI when you were talking about the contrast um, are the risks of the gadolinium contrast with the MRI. Um, so MRI use, does use a type of contrast and that contrast typically goes through an intravenous and goes through the bloodstream and circulates through the body. And we time that intravenous injection, um, so that it gives us a nice look at the pancreas and some of the other organs that are nearby. 
Um, it's not the same contrast that people use for a CT scan. So if people are worried about allergies from a CAT scan or shellfish allergies, it's a different type of contrast. Um, but something that's coming up more and more is that we don't actually know the impact of long-term repeat exposure to gadolinium. That's good to know. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and so I'm laughing. Not at, I'm laughing because <laughs> I've had three MRIs in the last three years with the gadolinium. So yeah. that's that's good that we don't know, but and, and time I, will tell, I guess. And I have, you know, I had this exact conversation. Um, yesterday with one of my patients who um, has a BRCA mutation um, and a family history of uh, pancreatic cancer and um, was getting a breast MRI uh, for her breast cancer surveillance. Um, and she tried, she spaced out the MRI. I mean, we have, really have no data for it um, or against doing this, um, but she spaced out the MRI um, to sort of decrease the gadolinium load. Um, I'm not saying that this is the right or mm. uh, wrong decision um, that she made, um, but she's a radiologist. And so we, after we discussed the findings on her MRI and how we would, you know, do further surveillance, we had another discussion about, you know, what her thoughts are about gadolinium deposition. And um, obviously she decided that, you know, in this case, you always have to weigh the risks and the benefits yeah. of everything. And so obviously she decided that the benefit of having the MRI outweighed um, the, the risks. risks. Um, but she also acknowledged that we really don't know um, the long-term impacts of that amount of gadolinium exposure over time. Because, you know, you're young. Yeah. So if we're going to keep on doing well, yeah. MRIs, Every at some point year. we want to know. Yeah, what the effect of that. I've never heard that come up, Dr. Lucas. So that's fascinating. I'll have to look at that. And I was going to jokingly say, not that this is a joke, but, you know, the one thing that and we had someone on the podcast, which will air soon, uh, a gentleman who's going through his fight right now. And it came up on the podcast because when you're injected with the gallium in the MRI machine, you know, they, they, they warn you ahead of time, you're going to have this burning sensation and it's going to feel like you're urinating, but you're not. And that's when you know when they're pushing, you know, that chemical through your body because your abdomen begins to warm up and you have this sensation of like wetting your pants, but you're not. Yeah. So I can, I can sympathize with my patients who have had a colonoscopy, but my MRI experience is yeah. limited to a knee MRI. So I didn't have the full experience and you're not all the way in either going all the way in but i have had the really fun experience of having my seven-year-old son have an mri oh. of the abdomen and so i i do sympathize because i watched him um do his mri and that was um for, challenging at best mostly for, for me seven-year-old <laughs> yeah especially for parents right i mean and he's smaller so i'm sure he had a lot more room in there right so it, it seems it probably seems not as claustrophobic, but you're still, you know, for those, you know, full disclosure, and I know I've brought this question up with many um, radiation oncologists um, and MRI techs, um, the open donut MRIs aren't as effective from what I understand in terms of the, uh, the display that they show. So that's why a lot of people prefer the closed just a donut MRI. A lot of the a lot of the providers prefer the Correct. closed Correct. <laughs> MRI because I, I know there's there's certain centers now. I've seen it in Connecticut where they they have these billboards now that they are promoting the open MRI for patients who have this fear of you know being claustrophobic. Um, 
it is, you know, I, I think that where I have had mine done, uh, the techs have been very good and, you know, very responsive to my needs when going in. Um, it's not for the faint of heart because, you know, depending on how big you are, you could be inches, an inch from the ceiling. So, uh, and you're in there for about sometimes 30 minutes. So yeah. it's, it's not a five minute MRI. I think this is a great transition and, and we brought up a lot of really fascinating stuff, but I think there's a common theme here, Dr. Lucas and the arc of all this. There's a lot going on, but I think it's really critical that people go see a specialist and an expert in high risk screening if they have concerns, because I mean, as we just said, you know, there's MRI, there's endoscopic ultrasound, there's other factors that come into this. There's um, potentially, you know, the age of the family members, the high risk. So first, before we get into like what that involves and how that looks and where people potentially could get more information on that, this term high risk, let's define for the audience, what is high risk and how are we identifying someone who's high risk? Because I'm sure you get many more calls than I do, but you know, we get calls at the office, you know, um, I, I saw Alex Trebek. We had one last week. They, they saw, you know, they realized what's going on with Alex Trebek. And I call this the, the big Alex factor because now pancreatic cancer is on this main stage. Finally, you know, we have this, champion to advocate for us on the world scene, not just nationally. And everyone is now hyper aware of the disease, but then there's good to that. And there's also the bad where people think like, Oh, I'm, I, my stomach is bothering me. I, I, or I, you know, I have uh, I have this crazy rash. Where should I go? I think I might have pancreatic cancer. There's almost like this quote unquote, again, air quotes here for the audience, self-diagnosing. So when we talk about high risk, let's define high risk for the audience first. Sure. And I think that definition in and of itself continues to evolve as we learn more and more about um, genetics and risk factors for pancreatic cancer. Um, so there are a few ways to define um, risk, and I tend to sort of think about um, them in two categories. One is people who have a family history of pancreatic cancer. Um, and you know, in that setting, um, we typically require more than one family member um, with pancreatic cancer. Um, and for the most part, it, it it's typically two or more family members like on the same side of the family. So let's say, um, you know, a parent and that same parent's brother or sister, um, or, you know, a parent and a grandparent, that parent's parent themselves. Um, because we're assuming some sort of genetic shared predisposition. Um, so it, it's typically family members on the same mm -hmm. side of the family. So I think about the familial pancreatic cancer um, group in that way. Um, and then there is the group um, who have what we call germline mutations um, in certain genes that have been associated with pancreatic cancer. Um, and uh, we think about people who have certain germline mutations um, like the BRCA mutations or some of the Lynch syndrome mutations um, and a whole sort of alphabet soup of other gene mutations. Um, and typically those individuals um, to be considered high risk 
need to have a family member who's also been affected by pancreatic cancer. So those are sort of, if I had to make global generalizations, those are the folks who we're talking about when we talk about high risk for pancreatic cancer. And if we go back to the family, because we don't get to choose our family, we're kind of given that, you know, we we don't get a choice. And that also, now I say like your genes, like you don't get an opportunity to, you know, pick your genes, they're given to you at birth. So when we look at families, I know you said like uh, two family members, but can we also say it's for the audience, because I know sometimes it will skip a generation. So let, let's say um, a great grandfather and then a father, that should also be considered high Because I think I've, I've talked to some people and they're like, oh, my great grandfather had pancreatic cancer. And I'm like, well, you, you should still see if you have any other the, the germline mutations because you know, it may have skipped a generation potentially. Um, and not necessarily, you may think you're not at concern because that generation before you didn't have it, but possibly the gene didn't get through or maybe it, it did and it didn't mutate or who knows. We just don't know enough, I guess. Is we that. just don't know enough. Yeah. Um, so let's assume that it's a gene mutation that our science just isn't advanced enough Correct. to know These what variants, it is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, let's say it's some sort of, uh, gene mutation that predisposes only to pancreatic cancer. Um, you're absolutely right in that sort of the expression of that gene can skip a generation. And we know this from almost all genes that are associated with cancers. Um, there are a few that sort of approach near 100% guarantee of developing cancer. But even some of the gene mutations that we know we that are pretty well described and um you know folks out there might have heard of like the um, BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutations they're not guarantees of cancer um and if you look at the associated risks of um even sort of the highest risk cancers for breast and ovarian cancer it's not a hundred percent guarantee that somebody's going to get cancer. So it's very easy to then make the assumption for familial pancreatic cancer if it's, you know, a gene that we haven't yet described or, you know, don't have the technology to detect at this point, that that expression of the pancreatic cancer gene itself might skip a generation. And so you might have a situation where you have a parent affected, it skipped the grandparents' generation, and you have the great-grandparent affected. It's pretty tricky going back in time um, because by the time we're going to most people's great-grandparents right now, um, we do question whether or not that was pancreatic yeah. cancer because um, I think our science certainly wasn't advanced enough at that time. And, you know, we do hear about abdominal cancers. And, you know, it works the other way around. You know, great-grandpa had an abdominal cancer, and so I can't prove that that's pancreatic cancer to put somebody at a higher risk classification. Um, but what we do know now is um, that a few of our sort of national networks and national guidelines have started to recommend um, that people who come from families with multiple affected individuals um, consider some sort of a hereditary evaluation themselves. Um, that could be a little bit sort of loosely defined as, you know, having a provider or a doctor ask some questions about cancers or other cancers in the family, or that can just mean, you know, why don't you go get genetic testing and see um, if that uh, gives us any more information for us. Um, so that could basically, I, I think that could help sort of define a little bit better the familial pancreatic cancer 
group itself um, because I think we weren't doing as much of a hereditary evaluation and folks that didn't cle- clearly meet you know other pre-specified guidelines for getting genetic testing done. So the genetic testing is really the end-all be-all in some ways if they don't know what if they have one of these germline mutations because that will kind of give us a better idea potentially if they're at that higher risk as well as in checking off the other boxes of having this strong family history if we can't go back to that great-grandfather that Mm. we just don't know what they may have succumbed from. Yeah. So I don't know if I would say that genetic testing is the end all be all. Um, So, uh, you know, a couple of things there. So genetic testing is different when you go to different people who order different tests through different companies. So it's very different than ordering a a complete blood count and getting, Mm -hmm. you know, your white blood cell count. Well, there's very, um, what's the term? And we've, we've talked about this with some of the genetic counselors there's no uniformity, right? And depending on, there's no, is there a universal guideline on genetic testing? There isn't, right? No. So, you know, depending on what test you get will very much depend on what provider you're seeing. And then, you know, there's some nuances like cost and um, healthcare insurance and so on and so forth. So, um, and it's changed an incredible amount in the last uh, 10 years. So, if we went back to um, you know the early 2000s um, and we were thinking about doing genetic testing um, for let's just say the BRCA mutations, um, if somebody had Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, we would start with what we call um, testing for the founder mutations and the three specific very well characterized mutations and. Um, BRCA1 and BRCA2 that are found in people who are of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. Um, But if you didn't meet the insurance criteria at the time for insurance coverage, that would cost $300, which is not an insignificant amount of money. But if you were not Ashkenazi Jewish or you wanted to get a full assessment of your BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, that out-of-pocket expense would be somewhere around $3,000. Um, which is enough to give most people at least a little bit of pause. Um, And if we fast forward now, um, we have many more companies who are doing genetic testing, and our technologies have improved so that we can do what's called more high-throughput sequencing, and we can essentially test for any number of genes um, at one time and not just, let's say, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. Um, And so... Different companies have different what we call panels um, that range in the number of genes that you could test. Um, and some of those panels are, you know, short and sweet, like 13, 14 genes. Um, and other panels are upwards of 100 different genes that have loosely been associated with a variety of cancers. Um, and so it's really important to speak with your provider about what tests you're getting Um and sort of what are the implications of those tests. So someone who comes to me and says that they had genetic testing done 10 or 15 years ago, and so we're done with genetic <laughs> testing, I usually say, well, bring me those results because I think that your testing, whatever it is that you had at the time, is very different from what I would recommend now. Um, and so I have had people come back and do additional testing, and we have found um, 
other gene variants that do run in the family. And that's incredibly helpful because once we identify that gene, we can, at one, advise other family members to test for that gene. But two, it really helps me to just to look at um, the patient as a whole and not just think about their pancreas. Because what I don't want to happen is to have me focus on pancreas, 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 and then have somebody get like ovarian cancer. Um, because we didn't know that there was a gene that could predispose to both of those cancers. And so the way I describe genetic testing to some of my patients is that um, if you come from a family with multiple family members with pancreatic cancer, it's probably not going to change my recommendation about whether or not we screen or do surveillance for pancreatic cancer. But it might change how we look for breast cancer, skin cancer, colon cancer, ovarian cancer, um, and it might have implications for your family members. Um, so that's the conversation I have. I, I have a conversation that you know sort of separates pancreatic cancer surveillance with the EUS or MRI or whatever test is right for that individual patient from the genetic testing, because I look at that as sort of a supplement. The other case where it's sort of changes my approach is um, when somebody comes to me and says, you know, I had a parent who passed from pancreatic cancer. Um, and in and of itself, having one family member that's been affected by pancreatic cancer um, doesn't typically qualify an individual for the, one of the high-risk programs or surveillance. Um, but if we are able to identify gene mutations in that family, um, then we can uh, change somebody's risk stratification and consider surveillance at that time. It's so powerful what you just said. I mean, and I know I think I said this before, but this is really why people need to go to a major center of excellence that have infrastructure, that have people like yourselves, they have genetic counselors, they have the clinicians, the researchers on the back end. A lot of times we get the calls and people say, and I've, I've had this happen on social media where they're like, oh, I just did the 23andMe mm. or one of these, you know, again, air quotes here, off the counter, over the counter genetic tests. And I'm like, that does nothing, people. So for audience listening at home, like you've got to go see a specialist. And as complex as what you just explained in a very fluent and very simple way that genetics is, I think it's it's uber critical that people go see specialists that are dealing with this and not just generalists. I, I said for years, like if you're dealing with pancreatic cancer, you can't just go see a general oncologist because they don't know this disease. And the same is to be said, if you are at high risk, you can't just go see a, a genetics person. I mean, they're going to know about it, but you've got to get like specialists and these people that are specializing in this, like yourself and many others within the Precede Consortium around the country, around the world, I should say. But it's so powerful what you just said, because the gene thing is, is fascinating to me um, that I know the NIH now requires, and this is a question that popped up, requires. So if somebody is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, they're requiring genetic testing. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that, that's correct? The, right? the NCCN recommendation is for um, everybody now with pancreatic cancer to have a hereditary evaluation. Correct. But they're not saying how many panels to do. No, they're right? not saying go to this company and do a panel correct. of 13 well, genes or go to... They're not saying, yeah. yeah. So there's really, again, 
it's opened, right? Like, yeah. so depending on the facility, I mean, it's great that we are encouraging or we're now they're mandating, I should say, you know, that there be genetic testing on these patients, but still now this begs the question to me to say like, how do we know that XYZ facility in Oshkosh, middle of nowhere USA is doing the same testing that they would do here at Mount Sinai? We don't. We don't know. Um, you know, the NCCN um, does say what genes are associated or have been associated with pancreatic cancer. So if you dive deep into that literature, um, you can find it. Um, but I agree with you. I think not everybody has the time to sort of dive into that literature and really understand it. Yeah. Um, and, you know... I, when people are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, there's a lot of stuff on your mind. Well, um, there's tons, yeah. And um, genetic testing isn't always number one, two, three, four, five, or six um, <laughs> on the list. Um, and I think it's actually a really exciting time um, to think about genetic testing when a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer happens um, because now we actually have targeted therapies. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a medical oncologist, so we'll let you know, yeah. the others that you know very well, yeah. um, handle that, <laughs> handle that. Um, but we have a lot of really exciting therapies for people who have, you know, BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutations. And there's really exciting data that have been published and, um, are, you know, continuing to come out about different ways to treat folks with um, pancreatic cancer. So it's really an opportunity for personalized medicine um, in the way that we like to think about it. Um, and I think that it'll only continue to get better. Um, and then, you know, it's not just, you know, a selfish thing, like maybe my treatment will be different if I, you know, have a certain gene mutation. It's for the family members. And so I talk about, you know, the altruism um, of that. Uh, some people, you know, if you don't have kids or if you don't have a big family, um, that might not be quite as important. Um, but if somebody does come from, you know, a big family, identifying these gene mutations, and we can find them in uh folks with pancreatic cancer, depending on what study you look at, and like somewhere between 5 and 15% of the time. Um, if you find this gene mutation, your family members can get tested for that gene mutation. And that can allow them, you know, maybe to be candidates for pancreatic cancer surveillance. But even if your family members are, you know, let's say you have a daughter in their 20s, um, and we identify a BRCA mutation, you know, she can start to think about um, doing different things for breast cancer screening early on. And then the other thing that I do um, talk to my uh, patients about that I think not everybody does, um, and it's certainly not within everybody's uh, moral, ethical, religious compass, um, is that if we do identify a gene mutation in the family, um, there are medical ways out there to prevent that gene from going on to the next generation. Um, and so, you know, depending on what the gene is and what the risks of cancer are that are associated with that gene, um, and then, you know, obviously person's uh, preferences and where they are in their life, um, that can really make a big impact when you think about, you know, families that have been, you know, unfairly burdened with cancer and not, um, and having the opportunity to not pass that gene on to the next generation um, can be something that's really meaningful. That's interesting. I've never um, heard that, but I think, you know, going through it personally for myself and now being in a high risk screening program, 
that's one of my concerns, you know, passing this on to the next generation. Mm -hmm. I wish I would have known before I had kids. Um, but you know that I think that's a, it's important that we share with our audience that people have those options and they have the ability to do that potentially. No, it's not. I mean, it's what it, I tell people is it's not your fun way, natural no, fun way to have, um, have a baby. Um, but you know, for families, I mean, there's some families that they've had generation after generation after generation, you know, and they go through this evil, the, the, I call it evil cancer, you know, pancreatic cancer. There potentially could be a way to, to stop that, you know. I want to talk about what you guys are doing here at Monsanto. And I know before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, how long the program's been in existence and how many patients you have. So let's talk about that. And how did it get started? Because we talked about you were at Columbia early mm -hmm. on, and then you got to Sinai at some point. Um, so did the, the clinic start? Did you take what was going on at Columbia and then bring it, you know, start your own here? Or how did that work? So, so I finished uh, my gastroenterology training at Columbia in 2012 um, and started my faculty position here in July of 2012. Um, and my focus has always been on high-risk GI cancer patients. And so um, I have office hours um, weekly, and um, essentially people have to have a family history of some sort of GI cancer um, or one of these germline mutations that we've been discussing um, to be able to come in and see me in the office. Um, and so I started seeing patients. Um, obviously, I was the new kid on the block. And so um, I met with different folks here at the Mount Sinai Health System. Um, we actually ended up merging hospitals with a lot of the other sort of a few other hospitals in uh, New York City shortly after um, I joined the faculty at Mount Sinai. And so I, I went to, you know, our breast cancer providers, I went to our um, gynecology, oncology providers. Um, I met with our surgeons um, and sort of told people I was here and um, sort of developed the practice. And along with that, we developed all of our research protocols. Um, you know, I think I learned a lot by from my time at Columbia, but I definitely wanted to sort of put my own stamp on things um, here. And so I created a a program that really made sense to me. Um, some programs really limit um, individuals that can get in based on a strict family history criteria or a strict gene mutation um, criteria um, because of some of the work that we've published showing that, you know, the impact of the, the genetic testing on uh, risk stratification. Um, I have a much more open door policy. And so, you know, I will talk to anybody who has a family history of pancreatic cancer, particularly if there are other cancers um, going on in the family. And I'll talk to them about whether or not we should do genetic testing. Um, and so it's much more, I think, open in that way. Um, and I will also, you know, sometimes people who are perhaps a little bit younger, who don't need to necessarily start pancreatic surveillance, um, but have just found out about a gene mutation in the family, just want to gather information. Um, and so that's something also that's sort of unique about our program is that we can just sit down and talk about it for half an hour. Um, and then I can tell them, you know, call me in 25 years. 
Um, of course, call me if anything changes before then, but you know, talk about when we really need to think about things and what we need to prioritize for people at this stage um, of their lives. Um, so our research and clinical program has grown. I was telling you earlier, we have um, somewhere around 600, maybe more individuals in our institutional review board approved um, registry. Um, those are individuals who are at increased risk of pancreatic cancer for a variety of different reasons. It's not always the highest um, risk strata that we were discussing a little bit earlier in our discussion. Um, but, you know, maybe somebody has a gene mutation with a cyst in the pancreas or some other combinations that don't really meet those very strict criteria that we use for um, some of our research studies, um, who perhaps with changes in genetic testing, changes in our screening recommendation might um, become candidates for um, studies down the road or different surveillance programs. So you've been busy. That's like 100 patients a year. I'm given, busy. Yeah. Given, given that, you know, uh, typical, what were we, three, there's 365 days a year, but you're not working weekends. Well, you might work weekends. I and do you, colonoscopies on Saturdays yeah, sometimes. So you're doing colon, <laughs> yeah, you also, you, you know, this is not, uh, well, this is a primary focus, but there's also yeah. other things that are getting um, involved in your business as well in terms of your practice. So um, to have 600 patients and I mean, and we're, I'm saying six years, it's really five years because we're in 2020 and we're only in February. So you really haven't had a full year. So that's a lot. It's a lot, but I love it. Um, you know, I see patients in the office once a week. Um, yeah. I probably see around 25, 23, 25 patients in a, a day, day, depending on a mix of. Do you eat lunch? Do you, um, do you snack? I get hangry if I don't you get hangry? eat. Well, so that's what I was no matter say, what that's, there is. If you're Filipino, so <laughs> I, I'll tell you a quick Filipino story. I had an insurance business uh, before I started Project Purple. I had a Filipino client. She is, I love her to death. She's amazing. But every time I went over to do a review, she would cook like a machine. Yeah. Like food would be like unbelievable. She was awesome. And it was great food. It was great, great food. Like it was it's, awesome. And I'd leave with a plate of food because yeah. she'd like take some home. Here's some cookies, like bring them home to the kids. But it was awesome. So people don't always figure it out, first of all, because my dad actually has red hair and blue eyes. And so I'm a I'm a mix. And so, um, you know, there's always a lot of Filipino nurses and other staff um, around. And so when I was in training, they wouldn't really figure out that I was Filipino, Filipino. until it was like the Christmas or the Thanksgiving potluck. <laughs> and I would just sit down in the <laughs> and eat all of all the, the pancit and the adobo and everything. And, you know, they'd kind of take another look at <laughs> me and be like, okay, I see what's going on here. Um, but yes, um, there is a scheduled hour lunch, um, which never ends up being an hour, but it um, always need, I need some food to get me through the you rest of the day. Cause, and I, I talk, as you can tell, I talk a lot um, that day. Um, and there's a lot of discussions that we have and, um, and it just takes a lot of energy. So I do need to stop for a minute Fuel up. and yeah. <laughs> shovel some food down. Um, Fuel up quickly. And, but, and you know, I love it because I get to know, I mean, we were talking before the podcast too about some other uh, friends that we share. Correct, yeah. um, but I get to know folks over time. It's an incredible blessing. I get to know people over years. I see, you know, family history of cancer is not like a one-stop shop. You know, it's something that unfortunately needs to be updated, um, at least on an annual basis. And then I meet all of, like, I meet family members. Um, and so, you know, we talk, I, I'm, I know everybody's first cousins, and I know their, you know, aunts and uncles. And so sometimes it's very confusing to me. I sit in the office, and I'm thinking about mapping out the family tree, and <laughs> 
but I place a name yeah. to those other people. Um, and it can be a little tricky because, you know, you're not supposed to share medical information with family members, family members and you don't yeah. know how much people talk over the Thanksgiving dinner table. <laughs> Some and sometimes don't, they don't, don't talk don't at all. They don't even know at all. Um, but I know a lot of things about the family members. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is that reporting of family history by different family members is often different. Um, so that's kind of a... Why do you think that is? I don't know. Maybe sometimes, you know, Grandpa Joe was closer with some other family member. And, or grandson versus yeah. the granddaughter. Or it's, you know, your traditional game of telephone. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. pancreatic cancer got turned into prostate cancer, yeah. got turned into, you know, something else. Melanoma so, at some point. Yeah. And so... Um, you don't you don't really know, but I think it's an incredible blessing to get to know um, folks over time, over many years, and really walk through that journey with them, yeah. um, and be able to provide them, you know, to the best of our medical knowledge at this time, um, recommendations on how they can reduce their risk of pancreatic cancer. It's fascinating. I got three questions left for you. Okay. Who is someone's listening to this? They've listened to this whole podcast. What is your ideal prospect, I guess, that should be coming either here or to one of the other pre-seed partners if someone's listening out in California or Nebraska or Chicago? Who who would that be? Well, I think, you know, anybody should be allowed to have the opportunity to discuss their concerns about pancreatic cancer with someone who's, you know, knowledgeable about it. Unfortunately, we don't have the resources to reach out to everybody, um, you know, at quite this time. And it's something that I think a lot of us are interested in figuring out how we can sort of expand um, our knowledge beyond this podcast and, you know, through. But the podcast is one of these things that I think, you know, raising the awareness factor, I've always said. And that's why I love having specialists on the, the podcast to share this information. Yeah, I think, you know, without digging too deep yourself, I think if you if you have one or more family members, sorry, more than one family member who's been uh, impacted by pancreatic cancer, I do think it's worth um, having the conversation with someone. Um, and A know, trained a, expert. A trained expert. Um, and Project Purple and others can put you in touch with, you know, the right people in many different locations. Um, but I think also um, people who have a family history of pancreatic cancer, but also maybe some either breast cancer, colon cancers, or what looks like in the family, just sort of a, there's a little bit too much cancer. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth having a conversation with an expert who can you know help you sort out whether or not it seems like there's a hereditary type of syndrome um, and think about whether or not there are you know steps that we can take um, to confirm or, you know, prove that there's no family uh, hereditary syndrome going on. Um, and then certainly people who either have a family member with a, one of these germline variants or personally have a germline variant that they know about with a, um, a gene, with a family history of pancreatic cancer should talk to somebody, particularly once you're reaching maybe around 50 or so, um, because, you know, we, we always hear about younger cancers and families, um, young folks who get pancreatic cancer, but in the hereditary um, setting, it still seems to be something that happens to uh, individuals in their 60s or 70s. So we don't want to, um, you know, do unnecessary tests with potential risks and downside um, when folks are a little bit younger, because um, we, we, for the most part, won't find anything then. Powerful. Where do you see 
this whole screening, early detection, high risk in five years? Do you think we're still using the same diagnostic testing? Do you think we've evolved? Um, I think so. As you know, there are multiple groups out there that are working on um, different early markers for detection. And I think that's awesome. Um, you know, blood tests, you mean? Blood tests. Uh, you know, people have looked at urine, breath, stool, uh, everything. And I think more work needs to be done in, um, in all of those directions because um, no test is perfect. Um, and we'll always need, you know, confirmatory um, tests along the way. I think, you know, first we really need to show that it works. Um, you can do the mental, you can do the mental exercise and say, well, it makes sense that if you enrich a population or a group um, for enough risk, screening and surveillance will work. Um, but I think we need to show that. And that's part um, I, of, I believe, the mission of the Proceed Consortium um, moving forward in a lot of, you know, Project Purple's efforts as well. Um when I think about what was going on five years ago, um, just, you know, my interest has always really been a lot of the genetic testing also, um, and overall awareness. I think we're in a much better place um, with a lot more hope and a lot more information out there. And if I can even reflect back to, you know, our earlier conversation about colon cancer in, uh, you know, in 2000, which is just really not that long ago. Um, the strides that we've made in that short amount of time are really wonderful and incredible. Um, and with groups like Project Purple and others really getting the word out there about pancreatic cancer and particularly, you know, the hereditary uh, nature of some pancreatic cancers, I think we'll have a lot more um, awareness um, and be able to, you know, really accomplish a lot more in the next five years. Do I think we'll still be using MRI and endoscopic ultrasound um, in five years? Probably. Um, but moving forward, I'd like to think about different ways to sort of tailor that surveillance protocol so that we're doing just enough to detect things early, but not you know too much. And I think we don't really know exactly where that sweet spot is for everybody quite yet. That was a loaded question. So uh, it's a, it, there's no right or wrong to that. And it's just fascinating to me. And I, I know you mentioned Project Purple a couple of times, but I, I will say this uh, before moving on to my last question is that because of clinicians like yourself, the work is happening. So without that, like that's a big part. Yeah, there's groups and, you know, I'll take credit for what we're doing at Project Purple, but we need the clinicians that are actually seeing these high-risk families like yourself and the other groups throughout the world. So I think that's really critical. Hopefully we'll see more of this become, you know, mainstream throughout the world and not necessarily in the major cities or at major cancer centers. I, I think that's one thing that I hope happens across the board. Yeah. And going back to one of your earlier points, I think that's all the, we need the information um, yeah. and to be able to change the recommendations and change the guidelines and really push everything forward. And so um, it's not that's not just the reason for seeing an expert. Um, it I would encourage people who have a strong family history, who have gene variants um, to see an expert where there's active research going on. Um, and it's not, I tell everybody in the office, you know, what we do, the research discussion happens last at the end of my office visit. Um, a lot of times people will come to my office and, you know, it's, I want to be in your research study. Um, I 
table that and I pause it until the end of the discussion. And I tell everybody that, you know, what we're doing here first is for your clinical care. And everything is based on what our recommendations are, um, you know, as good and as poor the data are, but what our recommendations are um, based on, you know, the literature that's out there right now, what I'm going to recommend for you for your surveillance plan. The research piece is um, a bonus that I do think everybody should participate in. Um, it doesn't typically involve people doing really much outside of their routine clinical care, but um, in order for us to understand this disease and understand, understand genetics and prevention and screening for pancreatic cancer, um, folks that have the strong family histories or the gene mutations should be in included in one of these uh, registries or high-risk registries um, so that we can continue to move this forward. doesn't cost them anything to uh, give blood and to be in these registries, right? Like we're not asking for anyone. Like I, I said this before, like, you know, what we do at Project Purple, we, we need funds to do what we do in terms of helping patients and funding research, but to get involved in these registries, it doesn't cost you anything. No, it doesn't cost, it doesn't cost anything. Um, Just time, right? Time. And that's not insignificant. Uh, Parking's also not insignificant (laughs) here in New York. No, but in the, in the grand scheme of things, you know, it doesn't, um, and time is, is, you know, we're not talking about three weeks of time or, you know, a six month commitment. It, you know, once you get through the initial phase, it's, you know, once a year for your annual appointment, you know, last question and probably the most important one, if someone's listening and whether they have a question, you've sparked their interest or they live here in the New York area and they want to reach out and get connected, get involved. um, What's the best way for our listeners to connect with you and to learn more about what you're doing here at Mount Sinai? Yeah, I think, you know, the easiest way is um, to look at our website. um, And um, if you, I guess, Google or otherwise search for me um, by name, um, just make sure you put MD after it because there's somebody that has my exact name who's um, a pop star and a dancer. And um, I will say that is not me. Um, I found out when we Googled you the other day for your pictures. (laughs) She has the same middle name too. Yeah. So Amy Lee Lucas. Um, so just throw the MD at the end of that. And um, Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai. I think you can find it by just the MD, but if you put Mount Sinai there as well. Um, and, you know, I, as I said earlier, I'm happy to see anybody in um, the office to to really chat about this, um, even if it's, you know, one family member that's been affected in the family and you want to learn uh, more and contribute. Um, I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um and we can sort of take it from there. Awesome. Well, Dr. Lucas, thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Uh, this has been awesome um, to learn about what you're doing here and a little bit about your background. We've been friends, as I said before, again, in air quotes, since the pre-seed meeting we met in December. I think we knew of each other before, yeah. possibly at what, the meeting last year. I think we came year. across each other. We've known each other for at least a year and a half now. Yeah, we... from the first meeting, mm-hmm. uh, which was two years ago. Um, but from all of us at Project Purple, we're excited for you to be involved in Proceed and all the work you're doing here is so important. Thank you that you're here in the greater New York community, uh, helping family members and doing what we do, um, helping us do what we do in terms of helping to find a cure. And I, I truly believe we're on the right path. There's still a lot of work ahead of that, um, but working with clinicians like yourself, I think we're gonna get there a lot sooner. So. 
Thank you for being a guest. And as we say here at Project Purple, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard today, please share us, like us, follow us. Till next time, that's it. Beep.